He's a former Arsenal captain. He's an Arsenal legend. He's an invincible. Now, he's coming home. Arteta versus Vieira. Arsenal versus Crystal Palace. Winner takes all. Podcast with your hosts Tom, Silent Dave, Isaiah, and Jay. Fun, football, and conversation. Welcome to a particularly prickly and exciting It's an Arsenal Thing podcast. I'm your host, Tom, and I'm in the company once again of the sealed and secretive lips of the man of mystery known as Silent Dave. Big thanks to Dave for finishing the edit to Podcast 26 whilst I was incapacitated with man flu. But I may have created a monster. He now wants to edit both the script and the audio. Now, I spoke to Isaiah and let him know a little prank that I'm playing with Dave as script editor. He has to look out for every dubious comment or double entendre. And everyone I get past him at the time of recording, he has to donate £5 to charity. Game on, sir. On the menu tonight, Isaiah digs deep in American Arsenology to bring you all the details of the Premier League clash with Crumpled Phallus, which is now in the hands of former Arsenal captain and legend Patrick Vieira. Surely there's an edit there, Dave. £5 for charity? We'll negotiate at the break. Myself and Jay give our view on the game in the gum room. We go over the latest news and look forward to the grudge match against Aston Vanilla. You may remember the Midlanders romanced and enticed away our former goalkeeper, Emmy Martinez, away from the Emirates, and then seductively wooed our prospective transfer target, Emmy Buendia, in the summer. And it's the first time that we've had a clash since the £30 million bid they placed for Emil Smith-Rowe, the unscrupulous bounders. There's the commentary from the Women's Champions League game against Barcelona and a return to form in the league against Everton. There's also another true or false and a musical icon slot. Episode 27 is entitled A Thick-Skinned Spaniard, A Senegalese Fengali and A Shouty Frenchman. Don't try and do that when you've had a beer. It's a reference to the clash of the former Arsenal captains and the last-minute reprieve and theft from Alexandra Lacazette in the dying moments of the game against Palace. 
What can we say Vieira deserved and got a hero's welcome? First off, let's celebrate the birthdays of two Arsenal legends. Tony Adams, who's 55, Arsenal and England captain, club legend, inspirational figure, motivational leader and life changer. 1983 to 2002, 504 appearances and 32 goals. 10 major trophies, including league titles in three different decades. Tony Adams is ranked number three in Arsenal's top 50 behind Thierry Henry and Dennis Bergkamp. Also, it's the birthday of cult figure, Highbury hero, icon and tour guide Charlie George, who is 71. In total, he played 179 times for the Gunners and scored 49 goals. George is also ranked at number nine in Arsenal's greatest top 50 players of all time. Now, if this episode doesn't get your hackles up, then you've probably had them bypassed or removed. There's a good chance that you are hackleless. First up, I put a post on social media. Which Arsenal player has disappointed you the most and why? Various answers came in. Robin Van Persie, Ashley Cole and Adebayor. So thanks for your answers and we'll try to get back to that if we've got time at the end. Um, Ken delivered a surprise in the form of David Seaman. Dave's shaking his head. He's already read the script and seen the post. Ken wrote, Seaman came with a big reputation, hid behind the greatest defence this country has ever seen and was the difference between coming first, second or third. Peter Smeichel was a level above him, which meant United won 13 titles to Wenger's three. Marginal gains. He even referred to Seaman as a hanger-oner. John Gregory replied, Ken's the only Arsenal fan I've heard say Seaman hid behind our defence. I'm positive that if you ask Dixon, Adams and co what they thought of Seaman and how they rated him, or if he hid in games, they would be astonished and laugh at the absurdity of the notion. Well, the campers weren't happy with that comment, and it's something I'll discuss with Jay in the gun room. If that hasn't got your blood pumping, then try this. Squawk Sport was at it again. This time, Jim White, who I used to think was all right. No more. Sky Reject Jim asked, can a dressing room be too nice, too safe and too comfortable? Does a nice dressing room enable a club to win things? This comes from a comment made by Martin Odegaard about the convivial atmosphere in the Gunners dressing room. Well, Jim White and the haircut known as Simon Jordan weren't happy with the midfielder's description of the atmosphere in the Arsenal dressing room. Nice, it appears, was an offending word. But fortunately, Martin Keown was on hand to add some balance. Listen to this. I wonder if Martin Odegaard at Arsenal... Um, is in any way feeling somewhat uneasy. But he, having said that, he was speaking to his own people. He was speaking to Norwegian uh, told TV. And uh, he, he said this, basically the message coming over was, do you know what, Arsenal is good. It's a nice dressing room. I'm really happy to be there. He says, uh, when you're at the highest level, as he is undoubtedly, it's not as easy to make friends and that kind of thing. I came from a different dressing room culture uh, in Madrid, of course. And it's not easy to fit into a changing room like the one at Madrid. I would say there's a big difference at Arsenal. I'm very happy at Arsenal. This is a very nice dressing room. So you're not happy, Jim, with 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 that? What nice, nice. is nondescript, non isn't it? Nice is nondescript. I think Simon's I think, just I, nailed it there. I think the, nice is nondescript. Yeah, but I think probably when you look at what he's come through, and every dressing room is, it is a bit like a jungle. Do you know, like when you start the game, it's a bit of a paradox when you start because you need to become a team player to win something, but you start off as an individual. Right. It means you've got to wipe everybody else out to get where you want to get to. If you think about me in a dressing room, uh, three months between us, 16 years of age with Tony Adams and being told one of you 
there's any room for one of you, you get some idea about, do you think I need any friends? Because it's going to be a war and I'm going to try and get to where I need to get to. That needs to be the attitude. But then if you want to win something, you've got to become pals and you've got to see the benefits of everybody else, their strengths, their weaknesses, and be a team player. But when you start out, it's about the individual. So I'm with you. Were you, 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 yeah. you happy with that Aesop's fable? We're talking about nice. If you were described by a colleague that was away, reflecting on his time at Arsenal with Martin Keogh in the dressing room, that he is part of a nice dressing room, how would you feel it's about a good, it? Well, it's a good start because he's obviously been in a situation where he feel it wasn't particularly nice. He wasn't that welcome. Um, but, you know, I think it's one of those about when you're... OK, he's talking about... You know what nice means. I it do. Means comfortable. It's easy. nondescript, Yeah, but when Arsene Wenger arrived, uh, we were a bit worried that he was, you know, was it going to be too nice? But I think we'd all shaped our personalities and characters by then, so we didn't necessarily need to worry about that. What Martin Odegaard is, is just starting out in, in his career. He hardly played for Real Madrid. He was there for a number of years, I think six or seven matches. Um I do feel the environment needed to improve at Arsenal Football Club. When you think of what was happening with Ozil, perhaps power, a lot of power there. and the, That wasn't not, very nice. Not the greatest of role models. So he's in a dressing room now where he feels he's got the right environment to work in. I think that's good as well. Hmm. Um, but don't be naive. You know, you, you need to have to be able to protect yourself and you need to almost come in equipped with a set of banter for every player that might want to attack you because you're going to, you know, you're going to spin it back to them. Well, I, I think that is where he's, what he's getting to. I mean, at Real Madrid, he was saying there were many tough periods, uh, both with the first team and the second team at Real Madrid. He gets to Arsenal, all of a sudden, it's a, it, it's a nice feel. In other words, he's meaning it's, it's pretty harmonious, but it's a nice feel. Yeah. My question here though, Martin, nice. I'm with Simon. It's nondescript. Do, do nice dressing rooms breed a winning mentality? Uh, yeah, they do. They do. I think nice got, dressing rooms. Well, I, George Graham was used to say, you know, it's too nice. You know, I don't want to do the, the Scottish accent. It's too nice. Too nice. But there you go, you he, he wanted he wanted that around everybody at each other's throats. And you can have you can have that. You can have that. But also, when the Vengas came in, it was a totally different environment. It was a very nice environment where you wanted the best from people. And, and maybe the player reads that needs that right now. And you have to say, Odegaard since he's been in there he's, he, you can see the improvement in his, in his play he's actually getting games he came off against Brighton uh, played uh, wonderfully well against Spurs so he's still learning the role still trying to find a way uh, what, how, where to be out of possession and then not lose the ball because he's obviously one of Arsenal's most creative players when they get it back so he's in that he's adopting but he it's the right environment for him now but you need to equip yourself with that you know that that layer of steel, Jim, that you need. You have to be steely, you have to be aggressive. Yeah, um, so we don't want it nice then. It's it's a combination. It's nice and it's tough, but it's real. And um, nice If you were described real. as a nice player, how would you feel about it? Well, that, that'd be great. I, I wanted to be the oh, best. Martin, put your, nose back, in a, put your no. nose back in a holster. I wanted you to be wouldn't a, like it at I all. felt I was a fair player, not a dirty player. I felt I would look but after nice my teammates. But nice is nondescript, isn't it? I mean, really. we're having this moment of not semantics and, and evaluating You've the meaning of words. You've got to want to love the people around you when you come into I'll work. I'll that again, Martin. If you come into an environment where you don't like anybody, it's not healthy. I do every it's day. It's not healthy. So it's a healthy environment he's talking about, but it needs to be balanced, doesn't it? It needs yes, to be balanced. It, it needs to have a little bit want, of We know you want to agree with us, but you're just not going there. A, because it's Arsenal, and B, because it's an Arsenal player. Odegaard, his choice of word isn't the right one. Nice gives off a vibe of, oh, it's lovely. It's lovely. We're all comfortable. Get the, We're all get pals the interview in the entirety and then we can comment That's fully. very true, Martin. I've given you it. I've given you it. I would say there's a big difference here, he says, at Arsenal compared to Real Madrid. I'm very happy at Arsenal. There's a very nice dressing room feel. 
Well, that's well, nice. Yeah, okay, maybe that's lost I'm in translation. Excited. It's a bit wokey, isn't it? It's yeah. wokey, isn't yeah, but it? Maybe the manager takes some credit. You know, he's coming For in. He's brought, For what? Nice because he's because he's got rid of a lot of problems in that Arsenal dressing room. You look at the number of players that have gone out. What's that got to in. do with nice? So it's now it's now it's a nicer environment to bring people in who are creative. That's what maybe the way I'm looking at it. Losers. I, the, the, there's no chance you want your dressing room environment to be described as nice. Well, I expect there to be players in there, there that aren't particularly nice. If we were but, to say Roy Keane at any time, how did you find the, the, the environment at Manchester United? What was the, the dressing room feel like? Oh, it was nice. Nice is bland, isn't it? Nice, nice is bland. It's vanilla. Well, look, it's just, you it, know it. You've got is. a little bit of everything in their dressing room, haven't you? But above all else, you need that toughness, that, that steel. But not nice. You need to be, yes, you need to be nice to one another. Pleasant. Pleasant. That's fine. Yes. But if you're describing the overall environment as nice, yeah. then that's surely not. As someone that's driven by competition, is a competitive individual that wants to overcome adversity, which is part of you, you wouldn't like to be considered as nice. You'd like to be considered as fair you know, and you respectful. Can be nice. yeah. You can be nice and you can be respectful and you can win things. But not in I, football. Well, Arsene Wenger proved you wrong there, Simon. I'm sorry. You know, you know, we're talking about one of your because when he came in, I said we won't win anything because he's too nice, and he proved me wrong. Yeah, but maybe he wasn't nice, and maybe you are misunderstanding what nice really is. You think nice is being everybody doffing their caps and everybody laying out everyone's breakfast for them, but maybe nice is a different version of what you think nice is. Well, maybe he's good at pretending. Maybe your nice nice is very low, almost. Superficial niceness. I mean, you and I have both agreed. He's not nice. We know that, Martin. (laughs) I don't think he's that Not that long ago, you said to me... Scratch below the surface, I don't think he's... You were talking about one of your former colleagues and you said that, oh, if it was me, I would have had him by the throat. That's not nice. Yeah, but is that, that what you said? No, that, that doesn't sound nice. No, 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 no. Occasionally, about principles that you you have, you know, if somebody the kit man, everyone must ah, respect. Yeah. We must respect yeah. if people are oh, throwing right. kit on the floor and so don't do as I do, do as I say, sort of mentality. No, but it's just like just adopting the right ideals, really. That I you want the right we, people in the dressing room. I wonder room if we important. dig back over the years and we see Martin observations on Meza Özil. If he defended him and now he's out the door, he's not being very nice about him. Yeah. I don't think I defended him. No, um, I did. Fa- I did say that if ever I was anywhere near the job, I'd have been the first player that I got rid of. Okay, it was one of the things that Sounds I did. Nice said it. Me. I said it early. That wasn't very nice. Uh, Martin Odegaard was speaking to Norwegian told TV Two, and he said it's a nice dressing room. We're pleased for you, Martin. That was embarrassing. It was like a mugging, both trying to get Keown on the hook to get him to say something negative about the club. I don't really care what anyone says. There is an agenda against Arsenal, but I'd certainly like to see White and Jordan, a sort of badly conceived same-sex Phil and Holly, try that shit with Laura Woods. Just a reminder to check out the blogs at arsedevils.com or americanarsenology.medium.com. Also, please subscribe to the audio or YouTube versions of the podcast. Our guest in the dugout is Ryan Baldy, the author of Dream Factory, Inside the Make or Break World of Football's Academies. Looking forward to that. It's something that's close to our hearts. From the makers of Donald Trump, the sexhibitionist, and the producers of Mama Gone Done Robbed the Waffle House comes a brand new series from It's an Arsenal Thing podcast. In association with our sponsors, Joe Hansen's Ice Cold Buffalo Spit, for every taste from the chicken shed to the boardroom. Johansson's Ice Cold Buffalo Spit. It's the only chilled alcoholic animal saliva you can trust. It's time for the commentary of the WSL Champions League clash between Barcelona and Arsenal. How did they get on? Let's have a listen. Welcome along. It may only be the first day of the group games in the UEFA Women's Champions League, but this is a game that's fit for a final. Two of the heavyweights of women's football go head-to-head tonight as Barcelona host Arsenal. 
Graham Hansen making that run forward. Decide to go back to Bonmati. Barcelona just looking for those spaces to open up again. Graham Hansen, lovely touch into the box. Here's a chance for Barcelona straight away. What an opportunity. Mariana Caldente took a shot, went wide. But they were looking dangerous, Barcelona. Here comes Asasat Oshuala, takes a chance at a shot. What an opportunity again for Barcelona. She's ruthless. It's the first time really Arsenal was, have been caught out of shape up the pitch and that's where Barcelona will be the most dangerous. Hansen decides to take this short. Leon sends it into the box. Still not cleared though. Here's a chance for Barcelona punched away in the end by Zinsberger. Yeah, quite creative with the corners, Barcelona. And Torohan just anticipated that that was going to drop from a header. And Zinsberger has been, it's been all Barcelona, hasn't it? She's been the busy goalkeeper. Shuala. Diaz. Here's Oshuala again, takes a shot, punched away. Now on the follow-up, surely. The first goal goes to Barcelona. Mariona Caldente opens the scoring. And you've got to say it was coming. And finally, on the half an hour mark, Barcelona have found the opening goal. You know, they've had the most possession, the most shots. And that was just about who reacted first. Caldente is not going to miss from there. Through ball to Oshuala. Loosens there, took a shot, but into the side netting for Oshuala. And just a lapse of concentration, perhaps, for Arsenal. And Oshuala was through. Here's Oshuala, Arsenal were asking for the offside flag, but she keeps on going. There's the second. Alexia Pideas just slots it home for Barcelona to double their lead. Barcelona have just been completely dominant in terms of possession and chances in this first half. And it's like they just strangle teams with their possession. It's incredible to watch. Here comes Asasad Oshuala. She's going to go one on one. There's the third for Barcelona. It just looked too easy. Within minutes of the second half beginning, Asasad Oshuala causes more pain for Arsenal. And they've got their third goal. She's really improved the game. Oshuala, in the last few years, is the worst possible start to the second half for Arsenal, but obviously the best one. Barcelona. Loose ball here. Picked up by Marnham. Into the way of Tobin Heath. He'll take a shot, Heath. She's not afraid to do so either. Just went wide. It's better. 
Vucevic. It's around Paris. Here's Alexia Puteas. Now Caldente will take a shot. Just swooped over. Hit the top of the net. Now Barcelona will push forward once again. Graham Hansen looking for that looping ball. Here's Lika Martins. Just close to the post there. Slightly wide. Just lost the foot in there. Williamson wasn't punished for it. Tobin Heath making that run forward, as is Caitlin Ford. Caitlin Ford finds herself with a... The key to Paris! What a save there! Blocked off the line by Maria Leon. I'll tell you what, what a move that was from Arsenal. Barcelona-esque, and that started with the bravery. And great play from Leah Williamson, who brought the ball out. and Terrific defending by Leon in the end. Tobin Heath is looking to potentially just be going to get the curl on this ball. Sends it into the box. Here's Arsenal get the goal back as well. Marnham with the touch on that one. Could this be a way back into the game for the visitors? That's about the delivery. Somebody, anybody could have knocked the ball into the back of the net. I'm talking attackers or defenders. And Arsenal proved to themselves that they can score goals against this Barcelona team. Lika Martins will pick up this loose ball. A little bit of a nudge in the back. Lika Martins! Four for Barcelona! She came on as a substitute and instantly makes an impact. And Barcelona are flying now. It's quite a highlight. She timed a run to perfection just behind Williamson and then great touch inside. So difficult to then defend against. And really composed finish. Exactly what we'd expect from her. A great finish by Lika Martins. Mati to Olfer. Opportunity was there. Couldn't get the connection. Graham Hansen is. Deas gets taken down. Penalty for Barcelona. Jordan Nobbs is furious. The captain was taken down in the box and straight away, without even any thinking, the referee points to the spot. It will be the captain, Alexia Pideas. Steps up, saved by Zinsberger. A brilliant save against a player you would put your, all your trust in to try and get that goal. There goes the full-time whistle. Well, it was a perfect evening for the home side. Barcelona, who have absolutely thrashed Arsenal by four goals to one.
From the land that gave you popcorn, drive-ins, Johnny Mathis, and the legitimate right to shoot your neighbor for parking outside your house. Direct from the U.S. of A., it's a potpourri of foosball analysis and stuff. It's American Arsenology. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome once again to American Arsenology. Brought to you by the curse of Jamal Khashoggi. I'll see you at St. James's Park, motherfuckers. I'm your host, Bind, Torture, and Kill. And now, tonight's top stories. Welcome back, me gooners and me goonerettes. Arsenal have drawn 2-2 with Crystal Palace in a London derby that featured the captain's class. Let's get right into it. The opening storyboard of this one featured manager Mikel Arteta welcoming a true legend of the gun to the Emirates. Yes, it was a return for Patrick Vieira, a member of the Invincibles and, here at American Arsenology, one of our favorite to ever don the badge. It was a match filled with intrigue, storylines, and... An alarming conclusion. Let's dive a little deeper. With Arsenal returning from the international break after the 0-0 draw at the Amex Stadium, Arteta chose a 4-3-3 slash 4-1-2-3 lineup that was predicted here at American Arsenology prior to the match. Review the last podcast or go to the bloggy blogs. We envisioned Arteta playing a 4-3-3, and he did. Let me say this, folks. I will give you the lineup. Aaron Ramsdale, Gabriel, Benny Blanco, Tommy Tomoyasu, Kiran Tierney, Thomas Party, and Martin Uhurigard, Nico Pepe, Emil Smith-Rowe, Bukayo Saka, and Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang. It was a bit of a predictable lineup. There was no chance that Mikel Arteta would leave Pepe out of this one. He could not do so. He has been reviewing the numbers. Can we crunch the numbers one more time? Hold on, hold on. Ty, I would like you to crunch those numbers again. It's a program. There's no such thing. Just crunch them. Just crunch them, please. Look, folks, as we have discussed, ad nauseum, Arsenal have struggled to score goals in the Premier League. So there was little doubt that Nico Pepe would be included on the day. However, in devising this particular scheme, Arteta made a very odd decision. He chose to play Emil Smith-Rowe. On the right-hand side of the pitch, the interior channel on the right, which was to the left of Nico Pepe. And as for Martin Udegaard, he occupied the interior channel on the left, adjacent to Bukayo Saka. Why Arteta made the decision to switch the roles, a flip-flop, a parent trap. You're not Annie. That would be correct. 
God coming in from the left. And ESR the Smith out on the right. Why he went with this strange move, I do not know. And it can be said, it did not come off. But it was just in the eighth minute of the match when Arsenal looked to be on a roll and things were going swimmingly. The Gunners won a corner. It was a poorly taken set piece that bypassed both the intended targets of Tommy Usher and Gabriel who were positioned on the corner of the six. But it was the Ivorian, Nico Pepe, who did well to track down the wayward corner. The Ivorian was allowed to turn and face up and played a neat little one-two with Takahiro Hattori Hanzo Tomiyasu. Pepe did his trademark shift, shift, shifted to the left and curl an effort into the far post. It was a brilliant strike that forced Crystal Palace's keeper into a fine save. But there, on the doorstep, to pick up the sniffer, was one club captain, Pierre-Americ Aubameyang, who slotted home with his left peg. It was a poacher's finish and a good goal, with the genesis of it all being derived and created by one Nico Pepe. The amount of criticism that Pepe has come under for this performance against Palace blows my mind. I do not understand it. If you know football, you too will not understand it. We will talk more about Pepe as we push on. But in the 12 minutes of play, it was Palace who looked more lively. As Benny Blanco would drop off, drop off, drop off, drop off. A worrying, worrying, worrying decision when defending that would haunt the Blanco later on in the match. On this occasion, it was Christian Benteke who was able to waltz into the box. And he tried a little croqueta to beat a trio of Arsenal defenders, but he was sandwiched delightfully so by one Thomas Party and Gabriel Magalish. There was no soup for you, Benteke. And a short while later, a bit of a talking point in just the 22nd minute as Bukayo Saka found ESR the Smith. It was good work from Saka to win possession, aided by Kirantini. When Saka won the ball, he played it to ESR 10 meters or so from the top of the D. The young England international had an opportunity to slip, slip, slip in Pepe. He did not choose to do so, but rather take on an effort from what was probably 25 yards. This is a decision that will be talked about and has been talked about in the Twitter sphere. It was a bit of a selfish move, and why? Mr. ESR chose to take the shot on himself rather than play in Pepe, I do not know. Football's a game of decisions, and in this occasion, the decision was not correct from ESR.
The price is wrong, bitch. And in the 28th, it was more from the big man, Mr. Penteke, as he was allowed to turn on top of Arsenal's box. But this time it was Gabriel Magalish who allowed time and space and allowed Benteke to get facing forward on Aaron Ramsdale. Benteke took an effort with his left foot that was tame and Ramsdale collected. However, it was another poor defensive action from the dirty half-dozen for Arsenal. Very, very odd and disappointing. As the game progressed, Arsenal dropped deeper and deeper, inexplicably so. We will talk more about that as we proceed. But, in the 42nd, one of the biggest flashpoints of the match. As Crystal Palace's James MacArthur lined Bukayo Saka up and kicked straight through the young Englishman on the top of Arsenal's Defensive box. It was a perplexing decision that Mike Dean made not to review what was, in all good conscience, a clear red card. I will say two things about this decision. VAR, what the hell is it good for? And Mike Dean, boy, you are a bald-headed pencil neck. Listen, folks. There is no doubt that MacArthur should have been sent off. He took aim, lightened up, and cleaned Saka out. Of this, there is no discussion. It was a red card offense for any other team that you're playing against not called Arsenal. This is the bias we live with as fans of the Gunners. And while that decision would have done a great deal to alter the final conclusion of the match, the end result, the end product, playing with 10 men for more than a half of football would have been a challenge for Patrick Vieira's Crystal Palace. Yes, Arsenal were screwed again by a refereeing decision. But, but... The fact that we are relying on such fine margins and the decisions of referees says quite a bit. I'm looking through you. Where did you go? I thought I knew you. What did I know? You don't look different, but you have changed. I'm looking through you. There was one final effort from a corner from Conor Gallagher that tested Aaron Ramsdale, but that was all there was to speak of. This was a first half that defied all logic. Playing at home, Arsenal got their early goal. The nerves were put to rest. But rather than push on... It was a home side that chose to retreat, retreat, retreat. Defend deeper and deeper. Bizarrely so. It was a scared, scared decision by the players and, more importantly, by the manager. 
And as the first half came to its conclusion, it all felt a bit off. Takeaways from the first 45. Number one. Arsenal's decision to sit off Crystal Palace after scoring the goal was cowardly and a gun-shy decision. Playing at home against Crystal Palace. Coward, coward, cowardly. And after the match, Arteta said this, quote-unquote, we started to defend something after scoring the goal, and that's what I don't really like. We started to play not forwards, and we kept the ball in the wrong areas and put ourselves in trouble. That's the period I didn't like. End quote. The period, question mark. The period, question mark. We were in the eighth minute of the match when Arsenal scored. So that begs the question, whose job is it to change the way we are playing? For a manager that is often seen joysticking every movement and action of his players... Arteta's failure on the day to make an in-game tactical change to the way his team played was both alarming and a damning indictment of his qualifications to coach this team. Number two. <laughs> oh, Nico Pepe. Let me take a minute to discuss Nico Pepe's performance. While it is true that Nico Pepe lost possession 22 times in this match, 22 times, his importance to this team was never more clear. Arsenal do not score in the eighth minute if not for Pepe. It was a great curling effort that forced Vincent Guaita into a fantastic save. And kudos to Obama Yang for being alive in the box. But folks, this was all Pepe. His unpredictability and 1v1 ability makes a true difference for Arsenal. But on the Twitter sphere, and even Mr. Club Legend Ian Wright. We're quick to scapegoat Nico Pepe. And folks, I do not get it. I do not understand it. And as an example, here is one thing a casual fan will not pick up on. Nico Pepe never, not once, zero times, enjoyed an overload in the attacking third. Not once. 
There was never a moment in this match when Nico Pepe was on the ball and enjoyed a numerical advantage of teammates around him. Never happened. The conservative approach of Mikel Arteta means that Nico Pepe hardly ever has teammates to combine with. And the astute Mr. Patrick Vieira knew this and instructed his players to defend in numbers in the wide channels. The one time, the one time, or one of the very few times that Tomiyasu did get forward, he played a neat one-two with Pepe, a brilliant wall pass, build that wall, and folks, well, that is where the goal came from. Don't understand the hate on Nico Pepe. Number three. Patrick Vieira. The man, the myth, the legend. It truly was a joyous occasion to see Patrick Vieira coaching at the Emirates. Yes, of course, some of it is down to nostalgia. But it has to be said, there was a vibe coming off Vieira. If you know, you know. And something about seeing him on the touchline, well, it just felt right. He was in full control of his team, aware of their strengths and their weaknesses, their potential, their upside. And so too had he transmitted some of his footballing ideas to them in a short amount of time. Listen, Palace looked more comfortable in this game in many regards. And given they were playing away from home with what is a far inferior starting 11, this was not a good look for Mikel Arteta. And folks, it says a whole lot about Patrick Vieira. second half began with a Thomas Party long-range effort that was wayward. And just a few moments later, in the 49th minute, my octopus teacher, well folks, he turned blindly into pressure and was stripped of possession. Hoo-ah! 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 It was not a good moment for my teacher. One of our favorite current Arsenal players, yes. Party turned blindly. There was, however, calls for a foul. Did he get stamped on? Well, I'm not buying it. Folks, it was a mistake by Thomas Party. That was capitalized and punished. Does 1 1 Palace. And, folks. The Benteke finish to Ramsdale's lower left was quality, and there is no doubt that Palace deserved to be level. It was a mistake by party. When it happens, you must own it. And, after all, my teacher, the octopus, he is a man of accountability. He will own it. 
The back four for Arsenal began to look more shaky, allowing the Palace attackers more and more space. And in the 56th minute, Ramsdale was forced into a save from Mr. Ayu. Number nine, Jordan Ayu. Straight down Broadway, he tested Ramsdale. Mr. Vieira gave two claps of the hands to applaud the effort. But it was looking, folks, like Vieira had Arteta's number. It's a Western number, man. But in the 72nd minute, there was a response from Arteta's men. As Ben White combined with Sambilo Conga, who found Alvama Yang, who was fortunate enough to play in. Alexander Lacassette. Yes, Lacassette had been subbed on in the 67th for the ineffectual Martin Udegaard. Obama Yang played him in neatly and there is no doubt that there was some sense of luck and opportunism from the touch. But needless to say... Lacazette found himself with time and space just inside the 18. With the freedom to unleash a curling effort to the left of Guaita. But as is so often the case with Lacazette, he panics in front of goal and does not convert. Let the revisionists have their way. We will talk about that in a few moments. However... It was a golden opportunity for Lacazette to make the game 2-1 and restore honor to the home side. But, as is so stereotypical of the Frenchman who lives in his own head, he could not convert. And then a short while later, things would get worse for Arsenal. As Mr. Sampi Laconga who, we have discussed, is the heir apparent to Thomas Partey, followed in his mentor's footsteps and made a casual, unfortunate blunder. Sambi, 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 oh my Sambi. In the 73rd, he was caught in possession and the ensuing counter-attack was a 3v3 against Arsenal. Mr. Edward, oh, Mr. Scissorhands. Edward found the ball on top of the box, defended by Benny Blanco, the 50 million pound man. Mr. Blanco, Mr. Ben White, backed off, backed off, backed off, gave more space, more time. And he allowed Edward to progress into the box. And folks, Edward needed no second asking. After pushing Ben White embarrassingly back into his own box, he unleashed a thunderbolt that crashed in off the underside of the crossbar, giving Ramsdale no chance. It was deservedly 2-1 Palace, with Ben White covering himself in sadness. 
And Ramsdale punching at the air. Given no chance. It was shambolic from Arsenal. And not very surprising. In the 87th, there was another big, big talking point of this one. It was a chance created for Arsenal. And guess who was at the heart of it? Nico Pepe. He played in a low-driven cross that Alexander Lacazette would flick on. Waiting on the back post was one sleeveless Kieran Tierney. Kieran's first touch was well manipulated and true as he killed the ball. Delightfully so for his left peg. The Scot leaned back ever so slightly and unleashed what was a very powerful driven shot. But it crashed off the crossbar and nothing came of it. Could he have done better? Well, it's hard to say, but he was leaning back. And a few minutes later, the energetic Frenchman, Lacazette, would do more good work, creating an opportunity for himself. Yes, Lacazette did well on top of the box to play a ball to himself towards the corner flag. He beat two Palace defenders, cutting inside the box onto his left foot, but blazed horribly over the crossbar. It was a bad decision. This was a game of bad decisions from the players and the manager alike. It was looking like it would be 2-1 Palace with all three points going to Vieira and the away side. But there would be a last gasp, corner kick for Arsenal in what was the final minute of play. This was the final action of the game, folks. Taking the corner was none other than Nico Pepe. He played a ball into the near post that was cleared. But he quickly found the second ball and returned it back into the box for a bit of head tennis. When the rebound eventually dropped, it was to the shiny, 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 shiny Mr. Clean, bald head of the bearded Lacassette. And with his right foot, from about eight yards out, Lacassette could not miss as he rifled home the equalizer for the Gunners. Let me say this. With all the talk of celebrating or not celebrating here at American Arsenology, we will always celebrate Arsenal goals, especially last gasp equalizers. However, it was an interesting contrast to see manager Mikel Arteta Double fist pump the air by earning one point. And the classy Patrick Vieira patting the carpet. Frustratingly so, had the prospect of dropping two points. Interesting, interesting, interesante. 
por el camino del desierto El viento me despeina Su aroma de colita No nada, nada de labios As There were big, big, big Mac Whopper takeaways. Number one, Alexander Lacassette. The Frenchman came on late, as he did against Brighton, and looked very sharp. Against Palace, he scored a crucial equalizer with what was essentially the last kick of the ball. And as has been previously alluded to here at American Arsenology, we celebrated said equalizer with joy and passion. We will always want this club to be successful. And while the performance was god-awful, one point is far better than none. However... The Alexander Lacassette revisionism that is occurring this week in our bipolar fan base is deeply out of touch with reality. Lacassette has never been good enough for Arsenal. And we shall never leave the quagmire of mid-table if we rely on a striker who has only managed 14 goals in his best Premier League season. Not good enough. Keep in mind that Alexander Lacassette, well, folks, he is playing for a new contract, but not at Arsenal, somewhere else. There are no indications that he is part of the future of this club. And folks, if he is, well, we are in more trouble than I imagined. Number two. Mikel Arteta's Arsenal had a golden, golden opportunity to climb the table this week. Wins against Crystal Palace and Aston Villa, respectively, would have catapulted Arsenal into the top four, the top four. True redemption for a manager who started the season 0-3. And yet, the Arsenal we saw on Monday night, they were scared to push on and kill the game after going ahead 1-0 at home in the eighth minute against Crystal Palace. A team, by the way, who have only one victory from eight matches this season. Not good enough. The lack of desire, commitment, and preparedness to meet this moment. Well, folks, it was truly disappointing. And while some of the blame must surely be shouldered by the players... Mikel Arteta has no excuses at this stage in his tenure. Early. Once again, there was no rhythm, no ingenuity behind Arsenal's play 
the attacking third. I have warned you about this, folks. Time and time again. This season you have been warned on this podcast. And given the players at his disposal and the length of time he has been at the helm, it is fair to say that Mikel Arteta has not articulated a clear attacking strategy for Arsenal. There are no clever patterns or well-designed concepts for breaking down the opposition. There is nothing there. It's a big fat nothing burger. There hasn't ever been, really. Let us be honest. There are none and have been very few. Signs of this team getting better or more cohesive going forward. Mikel Arteta looks a bit lost in this regard. He cannot coach effective attacking football. And being so lost, well, it is becoming harder and harder to ignore as other top flight clubs see new managers come in and implement a defined strategy and in far less time. Something is not right with the situation at Arsenal. Something is rotten in London Colony. And finally, well, to all our listeners, to Tom, to Jay, to Silent Dave, this was a performance that has pushed us over the edge. While we have questioned Arteta's man management team selections and his exquisitely styled Lego hair over the weeks and months that have come to pass, we have never used the two (laughs) dreaded words. Those two, two dreaded words. Arteta out. Well, folks... We have arrived at the conclusion that Mikel Arteta is no longer the man to lead Arsenal Football Club forward. There are a myriad of reasons why we have landed in this territory. But the biggest and most important reason is that this job is too big for Mikel Arteta. He is... Not ready. He hath not cultivated or worked at developing the ideas that are necessary to be successful at this level of football. Listen, he may well become a great manager. But first he must do the work. A crucial part of the process that his unique mentorship and past playing history with the club helped him bypass. Here at AA, we shall refrain from nastiness. We shall refrain. But, if we are once again to become a serious club, it is time for Arteta to go. It's nothing personal, Tom. 
But live, after all, is life. then give me sport has come up with the five most overhyped goals of all time in their opinion and we'll play them in ascending order at this point you may want to shuffle off the domestic animals or remove any breakable objects from the room does this guy actually believe what he's saying or is he just out for views 7.3k have viewed him on facebook and there's 2.4k comments hmm we've fairly answered that then these are the five most overhyped goals of all time. And where better to start than a strike voted the greatest goal in Premier League history? When Wayne Rooney scored that overhead kick against Man City in 2011, Martin Tyler claimed, It defies description. How about sensational? How about superb? How about... No. Actually, Martin, it can be described quite easily with three words. He shinned it. The most impressive bit about that goal is that Nani actually floated in an accurate cross for once in his career. Roberto Carlos was renowned for his free kicks, and none more so than his banana kick against France in 1997 that many claim defied the laws of physics. Mm. First of all, this goal was scored in a friendly tournament, Le Tournoi, a prelude to France 98, but secondly, what exactly is it about this goal that science is unable to explain? If anything, surely one of the most natural phenomenons of them all is at play here. The wind? Roberto himself even admitted this fact 20 years later in an interview with L'Equipe, stating, The ball was going completely wide, but the wind brought it back to the goal. It was a miracle. Now I really hate to drag Ronaldinho into these murky waters because the guy scored some genuinely exquisite goals, but we need to talk about a certain night at Stamford Bridge in 2005. When Ronaldinho did this to Ricardo Carvalho in a Champions League knockout match, even pockets of the Chelsea faithful rose to their feet and applauded. But let's take a moment to look at what's actually happening here. What's the little dance about? He's not touching the ball, he's not trapping the ball, he's just channeling Anton Dubeck in Samba Week on Strictly Come Dancing. Sorry Ronnie, but what follows is nothing more than a toe poke. Next up is Thierry Henry running 60 yards and scoring against his side's most bitter of all rivals in 2002. I know what you're thinking, how can that possibly be overrated? Well in reality, this was just Thierry Henry out for a nice stroll. Not a single Tottenham player even attempts to get anywhere near the Frenchman, let alone tackle him, and when he finally comes face to face with a defender on the edge of the box, it's Stephen Carr. From there, it was simply a case of wrong-footing a bang-average footballer and slotting it into the bottom corner. Thierry scored better. And finally, we come to a goal so hyped, I'm probably risking death threats by even suggesting no actual magic was used in the making of it. I'm talking about that Dennis Bergkamp goal against Newcastle in 2002. Now what really annoys me about this goal is that it's clearly an accident. Bergkamp receives the ball on the edge of the box, he starts to fall backwards, and in an attempt to regain his balance, inadvertently knocks the ball behind him, outmuscles Nikos Dabizas, and voila, one of the greatest ever goals is accidentally born, like a child conceived in a boozy one-night stand. 
Can you believe it? Absolutely ludicrous. But it gives us something to talk about in the gun room. And I will be talking about it with Jay. Um, now, what I normally do is I send him some sort of script notes. I'll send that through either on the day or a couple of days before so he can make some notes, research stuff or, or whatever. But I haven't told him about the bit that I'm going to bring up about David Seaman hiding behind a defence and being a bit of a hanger-oner. And I haven't sent him the notes about the uh, Burkamp goal being massively overrated because I just want to gauge his reaction. Um, so it's going to be fun. It's coming up soon. I can't wait. It's an Arsenal Thing podcast with your hosts, Tom, Silent Dave, Isaiah and Jay. By the way, I've got to ask, did you see Belgium versus France during the dreariness that's known as the international break? Wow, what a match. Belgium 2, France 3. Um, Theo Hernandez completing the incredible comeback win in the Nations League semi-final thriller. France battled their way back from 2-0 down to reach the Nations League final in stunning fashion. It's actually one of the best games I've seen for a long, long time. Southgate, take note. Right then, let's have a joke. Uh, news this week that J.K. Rowling has pocketed a staggering $7.7 billion on the back of an irritating dwarf wizard. The last person to do that was Debbie McGee, one for veteran gooners. In general football news, Wayne Rooney is the subject of a documentary over his string of affairs. It features his wife, Colleen, who's uh, justifiably furious at his behaviour. Wayne is trying to turn over a new leaf, which will come as welcome news to everyone attending the midweek tea and dunk sessions at Age Concern or even at the local creche. Wayne, once again showing that age is no barrier, 80 down to 18, fairly inclusive. You can have a cup of Horlicks or a glass of champagne. It depends on the gig. One for the younger folks. It was nice to see Jack Wilshire back at Arsenal in training. He was even seen at Bournemouth's under-23 match with Arsenal in an Arsenal jacket. Now there's love for a club. There's been talk of Oxlade-Chamberlain returning to Arsenal, and that's on the back of rumours of Alexis Sanchez returning. That's probably about as likely as Prince Andrew driving past a girls' school during a netball match. Whee! You didn't think about that one, did you, Dave? No, nope. we let that slide. That's not worth a fiver, is it? Um, true or false, Arsenal's Beth Mead gained a degree in sports development from Teesside University whilst playing for Sunderland. Is that true or false? Argue amongst yourselves, you've got the time it takes Dave to make an exotic pillowcase on the sewing machine. Hold on, where's the pillow go? It's just a giant hanky. Uh, anyway, the answer was true. Give yourself a pat on the back and treat yourself to a sticky bun or bare minimum a biscuit. Right then, what's up next? Uh, the musical icon slot, more of a walk down memory lane to one of Arsenal's greatest nights. Take a listen to this. So a night of chilling simplicity about it really. Arsenal must win by two goals to take the title. Anything less, and it stays on Merseyside and Liverpool. 
no use going to Liverpool and sitting back and surrendering like a lot of teams did. Just a small town girl Living in a lonely world She took the midnight train going anywhere Just a city boy Born and raised in South Detroit Took the midnight train going anywhere. Made a darkened little run in there. And Smith! A singer in a smoky room. The smell of wine and sheep.
momentous occasion this for Arsenal. Coming here, requiring a two-goal lead and snatched it in the most dramatic fashion in the last minute of the game. It's an Arsenal Thing podcast. Fun, football and conversation. Next up is a return to domestic duties in the WSL with the Arsenal girls taking on Everton. Time to get back on track, girls. And their depth of squad is highlighted here today. Tobin Heath, the American World Cup winner, makes her first start for Arsenal. Of course, her year at Manchester United was disrupted by injuries, but she still managed to show her quality when she was fit. Pick off. Both sets of players will link arms together. This a sign of solidarity with their colleagues in the NWSL in the United States. And it's a move which has been warmly applauded on all four sides of Meadow Park. Cleared as far as McCabe. Great effort! Well, she scored from long range once again. Katie McKay breaks the deadlock. McKeever may believe she could have done better with that. But having scored from miles out against Aston Villa last week. The corner is deep. Ruben Moy, 2-0. Lottie, moving Moy through the legs of McKeever. And Arsenal are on their way to five wins out of five. Ruben Moy was always. Barnum, beyond Christian, serve, brilliant goal. Freedom Arnhem with a spectacular finish. Three goals for Arsenal and they are three points clear at the top of the Women's Super League. It's time to welcome tonight's guest in the dugout. Just like to welcome Ryan Baldi to the dugout, author of Dream Factory Inside the Make or Break World of Football's Academies. How are you, Ryan? I'm good, thank you, Tom. How are you? Yeah, not too bad, you know, uh, plodding along, as you do. Um, first off, are you a football fan? If so, where'd you hang your colours? I, I don't have a team. I'm a football fan, but um, I don't have a team. Um, if, I usually answer that question by saying Shrewsbury Town because I um, spent a lot of my life in Shrewsbury, so they're probably closest to my heart. But, well, um, we, we've always got room for another fan. <laughs> we can squeeze you in. <laughs> <laughs> well, interestingly enough, I do have something in the works that will be of interest for you in, in, in a couple of years' time. My next oh. book um, is, is about Arsenal. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm deep in the Arsenal research at the moment. So I'm, oh, I'm fantastic. learning all about those sort of things. Yeah, keep us up to speed with that one. Um, right, can you tell us about your career before you did this book? Yes, absolutely. So I was quite late to to writing and to, to football writing. Um I think I was about 28 before I, I wrote my first article, my first blog or whatever it was uh, a few years ago now, a good few years ago. Um, 
I had gone through uh, a series of unsatisfactory jobs um, when the, the most recent of which came to an end. Um, my, my wonderful partner, uh, she sort of said, why not just sort of take the time to, to think about what you really want to do rather than bounce straight back into another job that you, you're not going to enjoy too much. So I've been blogging for a little bit about European football. I've always had a deep passion for football, especially European football. Um, I was an avid reader of world soccer from a very early age. I used to steal copies of it from the school library when I was probably 12, 13 years old. I've been reading it ever since. So it's, it's a real film now that I, I write for them regularly. But um, yeah, that's how it started. It started by blogging, building up a bit of a portfolio, pitching myself for freelance work. I did intend to go down quite a traditional route and do an NCTJ um, qualification and, and maybe look to work for a local paper and, and build my way up from there. But uh, the freelance work just started to snowball, and, and within a few months, it was it was a, an okay living. And, you know, never gonna never gonna break the bank doing this job, I don't think. But yeah, exactly. Yeah, so you know, it's, it began to pay the bills pretty quickly, which I was really really privileged uh, to experience. And, and yeah, I did a few years. Um, uh, I've been around for about a year when I got my first full-time position on, 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 in a staff role with Football Whispers, um, who are now a 23 sport, the sports intelligence company as they've, as they've evolved into. Um, I worked there for about two and a half years as a senior writer. Went back freelance again a couple of years ago. Um, and I work predominantly for uh, BBC Sport, The Guardian, uh, World Soccer Magazine, uh, a few wow. others. And uh, yeah, now, now I'm working on on my third and fourth books simultaneously. So yeah, I've just been busy. Well, it's, it's, it's kind of a difficult medium to break into. If you haven't got the contacts and all that sort of thing, it is really hard, isn't it, to break into, but you, you've cracked it. So it's, it's amazing. The Dream Factory looks deep into the heart of uh, youth football and club academies and features homegrown Premier League stars such as Marcus Rashford, Trent Alexander-Arnold. What led you to write this book? Um, that's a good question. It's one I've been asked quite a lot and one I still don't have a very satisfactory answer for, I'm afraid. I don't really know. <laughs> we'll crack um, it tonight. <laughs> we'll have a go. We'll have a go. Uh, so my first book was um, of a kind of loose youth development theme. theme. It's called The Next Big Thing. And it was about um, uh, how the uh, young footballers who are tipped for the top sometimes don't always fulfil expectations and the different pitfalls that can, that can trip them up along the way. So that was... Uh, 15 players profiled and interviewed uh, who all fit that description um, looking at you know some, some quite sad and tragic stories of, of why they didn't quite make it but um, it revolves a lot about around young players and, and youth football and, and development and things so uh, I, I built up a decent array of contacts within that world from that book um, some of the freelance work I did I, I've kind of come to specialise in doing profiles of upcoming young players and speaking with their coaches and things like that and getting to the heart of who they are and what drives them and whatnot so I guess I kind of lent into that as, as an area that I could explore and I've always had a fascination with uh, the emergence of young footballers as I think most football fans do there's, there's something quite unique about the thrill of seeing a young footballer break through at a football club and especially if they're going to come through the academy and, and are local to, to the club um, it's a, it's a really unique and, and wonderful thing that, that um, comes around every now and again. So I thought I'd kind of uh, reverse engineer that process a little bit. So my first book went from beyond that point to, to, to look at what comes next. And the second book goes, takes you know, a, a step back and looks at how these players get to that point. So it's a deep dive into the academy system, which, um, which I wasn't so sure was going to be possible because I knew that to do it properly, I'd need a lot of access. Um, 
And I think from the outside looking in, it seems that the world of academies is quite closed off usually. Um, I think clubs are fairly fairly reluctant to, to kind of open their arms and embrace the outside world to, to have a look at what they're doing uh, behind the doors of their academy. Were they totally aware about the subject matter that you were going to dig really deep into the academies and uh, yeah. trying to find out how it all worked? Yeah, so the, so the kind of the way I attacked it was I think uh, clubs have been put off by the fact that a lot of the coverage around youth football is, is negative. Um, and a lot of that is justified, um, which I do definitely delve into deeply in the book. But there are also a lot of people um, doing good work who are quite keen to to talk about that. And that's mainly the people who are doing the day-to-day work on the pitches, the coaches themselves and the academy managers. So in approaching people like that, um, that's how I got, got my in. And um, I always say that uh, access begets access. So once you've got in one place, you find doors open elsewhere for you because you can kind of you have that to be able to vouch for you that you went somewhere else. So I went to Crystal Palace for the first club I was able to go visit and spend a day with. And um, yeah, that was the point at which I realised that this was going to be something that was possible. Um, and it just sort of snowballed from there. I spent two years travelling up and down the country, visiting, visiting academies at all levels, uh, speaking to different people within the game, uh, governing bodies, people... Uh, who are parents of players, parents of players like Mason Mount and Ryan Brewster and parents of players who've been through the system and, and have fallen out of it, um, players themselves and lots of different coaches and administrators to give what I think is the kind of broadest but also the most detailed picture of of the world of academy football. Well, I was reading some of the write-ups of, uh, you know, about the book and uh, they're absolutely glowing. So I haven't really had a chance to dig into the PDF that you sent me but uh, I'm really looking forward to it because on this podcast, we've kind of, uh, have you heard of uh, Beyond the White Lines? Uh, no, it's, it's, so. an, it's an organisation that's basically there to try and help youngsters uh, once once one door is closed to try and right. open up and re- jumpstart their career kind of thing. So yeah. it's everything that we've been doing recently has led us to you. So, um, oh, brilliant. Were you aware of the scale of the problem of so-called disposable talent um, before undertaking this book? Yeah, I think so, because there's been quite a lot of work done to that end, uh, not least Michael Calvin's book, No Hunger in Paradise, that came out, I think, in 2017. There have been a few reports and documentaries into that side of things. But still, to, to, to delve into it and speak to the people with first-hand experience of that, it is still quite shocking to, to, to learn and to explore. Uh, and it's an uncomfortable subject. And it's an area of the game. What, what I found... What was a surprise, I think, was not so much the scale of the issue, but um, almost the delusion the game has towards it. So in speaking with uh, clubs and governing bodies and outside um, support, um, I found that the game itself seems to feel that it is closer to cracking the issue of welfare and aftercare than it really is. Um, so there's a bigger gap there, I think, than they appreciate. So that was one of the main findings from my, from my book that I wrote about extensively and, and detailed. Um, and that was something that was quite quite alarming to, 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 really, to really delve into. Um, I was obviously making some notes before we met up. Um, I didn't realise this, but under Premier League rules, development... Um, each club is allowed to register 250 youngsters in their academy. Of those entering the academy at the age of nine, less than 0.5% make a living from the game. Uh, that's staggering, isn't it? The percentage for kids hoping to be the next Saka, Grealish or Foden. Did you um, speak with uh, a great many people that have been recently rejected? Yeah, so some quite um, intimate profiles of, of players who 
who've been through the system and been spat out by it um, at different ages as well. So right from speaking with That's the a good term as well, isn't it? Because they literally are. The machine sucks them in and spits them out. That's exactly what it does. So I, one of the people I spoke to was the journalist, David Connell, Guardian journalist, who's done a lot of really good work in this area. And he had an interesting perspective of it. He said that if we accept that this is a system that sweeps in as many as 12,000 boys at any one, at any one time, you know, that doesn't account for the, the girl system. That doesn't account for people in pre-academies who aren't signed to official contracts yet. That just accounts for kids under nines and up who are in the academy system. There could be as many as 12,000 at any time. And even the most uh, generous estimates would say that 90 plus percent of them don't get through. If we accept all those facts, then we can't look at academies as being dream factories. We've got to look at them as being crushing of dream factories. That is their primary product. That that that, that devastation, that disappointment, is their primary product, and that should be it should be treated as such, and they should be addressing it, it, it as such as well. So, yeah, that that was a really interesting perspective from David Conn. And yeah, I spoke to parents of players as young as as seven who had been with four Premier League clubs, but then when he broke his leg playing from one of them, he found radio silence from all of them and, and was very unceremoniously released by the club that he'd been with since he was four. So that's pretty much half of his little life he'd been with this one Premier League club. The parents asked me not to name the club and not to name the kid because he's still trying to make his way through the system. But they did um, uh, they, they did give me access to the email that they were sent by the club that released them. And it was just completely impersonal. So the, the, chap- the, the title of the chapter that deals with this is called Dear Parent Guardian. Um, and I call it that because that's how the email started. So it was supposed to be, there's one of these uh, boilerplate emails that you're supposed to click to infill the name of the recipient. They, ne- they never bothered. So it just said brackets, dear parent guardian, never once mentioned the, the child by name, never mentioned anything relating specifically to him, just kind of thanked him and disinvited him from coming anymore. So yeah, right from the age of seven, uh, I spoke to parents of, a, of, a, of an 11 year old boy who said that he, you know, he'd been released by two clubs by Liverpool and then old. And, um, his mum found him in his room crying one, one night after being let go and saying he didn't want to live anymore because uh, he'd been let go by his football club and she was trying to start up a support service that would, would offer a care package for players released by clubs where, where they could continue to 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 train elsewhere and have uh, peer support and psychological support if they needed, but she was facing nothing but closed doors. And that was a, a similar story throughout uh, with other people that I spoke to who were trying to um, build some kind of support network and get some, uh, some help from the game. Um, uh, but yeah, the game seems resistant to it. Uh, yeah. Boys as old as old, older than up to 14 and, and 18 who fallen through the cracks. And um, there's a chapter called how, how many times can you face rejection? Because, those are the words of a player to me who'd been released by Fulham when he was 18. They decided not to offer him a pro contract. And he then went on a, on a process of trial after trial after trial, which is, which is what happens when, when these players are released. Um, and he, from, from one day finding out he wasn't good enough for Fulham, he soon then was told he wasn't good enough for Brentford. He wasn't good enough for Colchester. Uh, he went on about five trials before he landed in non-league in, in the eighth or ninth tier, just to kind of keep his toe in the game. And that compounding rejection can be something that's really difficult to to deal with for, for these young players. They deal with this loss of identity, this this thing that they've been working towards. A lot of them, especially if they've spent most of their lives in the system, if you if you join an academy at under nines and you're released under 18s, that's half of your life. And, and, and most most of the players have been around the academy world even younger too. They've been at pre academies from five and six. So Must just stress though that there is it. there is a sort of hopeful uh, story to this as well uh, on some people's accounts because Harry Kane was rejected by Arsenal, wasn't he? Uh, he was yeah, too fast, course, yeah, too slow, and all this sort of thing. Look at him now. Yeah, yeah there, there, there are people who come well. through it. it. It is, but it's also um, 
the sheer numbers uh, are what are most alarming, I think. So the, the sheer size of the sheer weight of the attrition that, that this the system produces, I think, is the most alarming thing. So there will be success stories. There will be players who bounce back and find their way. Um, it's just that these these stories come at a cost of, of those who don't and those who suffer. So uh, it's important to paint the whole picture. I think so. That's what the book does. Absolutely. I look at these these sort of these uh, these horror stories almost, and the, these stories of of, of some quite difficult feelings to deal with and, and, and things to process and losses of identity and whatnot, but also some of the great work that has been done to combat that from the people doing the day-to-day work, the coaches themselves, you, you most, you know, to a man of the coaches I spoke to and to a woman for the female coaches too, that they care deeply about what they're trying to do. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's, it, it's, it's a balancing act and it's one uh, that they're probably not quite getting right at the moment, but it is, uh, yeah, there's a lot to it. There's a, there's a deep and detailed story here, which, which covers uh, a lot of different different facets. Um, the book acts as a guide for parents, coaches, managers, and players, and the families to make them aware of the issues uh, facing a young, vulnerable player. And it gives a genuine insight to the world that we, as football fans, never really get to see. Um, was that part of what you wanted to achieve? Kind of. Um, sort of make it so that you're not the only uh, sort of family and the only youngster you're making people more aware it's an expose as well yeah I didn't specifically have that have that in mind I just wanted to sort of get myself in there and peel back the curtain for anyone who cares to, to take a look but of course, you know, I think some of the most interested people will be those who have been through the system or are about to go through it or have children who are in it or, or contemplating entering it. So, yeah, I, I think it is an element of it, but it certainly wasn't a conscious decision. It was just a, a fascination on my, on my own behalf, really. I think that always has to be um, the, the main driver when, you, when you're writing a book. It has to be something that's going to sustain your own interest, first and foremost, for the year or two that it takes to put it together. Uh, in a recent Sky blog, Martha Kellner on the subject, uh, she revealed several boys mentioned to me that they felt they were taken on as simply training partners for one or two of the boys um, that they could kind of help them develop. One individual working at an academy described it to me as a form of triaging, um, just deciding which order to prepare boys for their exit from football. It's, it's a ruthless, callous kind of sound isn't it when you when you hear things like that is that yeah, an accurate does. reflection do you think absolutely it, it comes back to the numbers as well so um we know that it, at best a club will maybe get one player through from every age group to eventually a, a first team appearance or two but to develop that player along the way along the journey they need other players with them they need to be able to put them as part of a team so the other players are, are effectively bodies as, as they're very unsavourably known. Um, so, yeah, a player can get a long way in the academy system without ever having really any prospect of a career in the game. Um, that's just the way the system is at the moment, the way it's set up. It's been called a factory farm mentality. Uh, it certainly appears to be that way, doesn't it? Suicides, alcoholism, uh, anxiety, clinical stress, depression, loss of confidence and other issues um, where where can families reach out to if the clubs are not going to kind of get involved with these players that they've rejected? Where can they turn to? Yeah, it's difficult. There are support services. There are, there are um, ones such as PlayersNet, who, uh, who I spoke with for the book. Uh, the PFA offers uh, offers advice, but it can't really intervene unless the player is eighteen or over because they can't they don't have membership that young. Um, but it is tricky. I think. Um, Clubs are doing more. I think E Triple P when it came in in 2012, 
um, stipulated that clubs have to have a full-time welfare officer and things like that. They have to have provisions in place. But a lot of the time, it can be sort of a tick box exercise. So um, there might be a welfare team at a top club who follows up with players who've been released. Uh, but that could just be a quick phone call to check they're okay. Um, so it'll be a 16-year-old lad receiving a phone call out of the blue from someone he's never spoke with before, um, someone he's never dealt with. So and they're phoning up saying, hey, how are you doing? Are you okay? You know, he's not going to he's not going to open up to those people. So it's it's difficult. It's, it's not really enough. That, that comes back to the point I made earlier of the, there being a gap between the, the adequacy of the welfare and offer and what the game feels it feels it's doing for the, for the young people. It was funny you mentioned David Conn from The Guardian because I was reading something he'd written back in 2017. He said there are hundreds of boys across the country being set up to fail. It doesn't feel like, you know, 2017, now 2021, not really nudged this forward in any real uh, tangible way, have we? No, nothing has really changed materially since the advent of E P in, in 2012. Um, there are some people I spoke with in the game who feel as though it is approaching a point at which we need, if not complete overhaul, then a tweaking of the system, um, a refinement. And I think that's certainly the case. Um, but yeah, it is. It, it's, it does set these people up, up to fail more often than not because... As, as David said to me, that that failure is the main product of what they produce. Um, so, yes, it's, it's again, it comes back to the whole thing of, of striking the right balance and, and what the main the, the main thing that academies have to do and what a lot of coaches are, in fairness to them, are very aware of is that they, they are deeply aware of that the, the majority of the players under their care aren't going to have a career in the game. So they have to make sure that the, the the experience of these players while they're with the club is enriching regardless of the outcome, that they don't come away feeling as though they've wasted several years of, of their youth, uh, that they feel that it's still been an enriching experience regardless of, of whether they make a career in the game or not, because we know the vast majority don't. So, um, yeah, a lot of people, as I said, a lot of coaches that I spoke with um, are doing a lot of good work to that end, which I detail in, in a chapter called uh, Raising a Rashford, um, which uh, has an suggest focuses on, on on the work Man United did with Marcus Rashford and how they helped encourage his sense of social responsibility and and, and, and social conscience and things like that um, and, and details some of the other work clubs are doing but again it, it still it's not it's never a finished job it's always got to be a work in progress and there's still a lot of a lot of progress that needs to be made I think um, since the Southgate Gareth Southgate revolution younger players clubs are even more keen to find homegrown talent is that creating a bigger problem? Um, I'm not sure. I think I think what that that might lead to, and again, is one of the, the motivators behind um, my wanting to do this book was that I think you can look at what happened at the Euros uh, and think and look at all these these brilliant players who come through the system and think, wow, it, it must be a really great thing and it's working really well. And and to an extent, it is. It's producing players at a greater clip than ever before, and producing a level of technical ability that we haven't previously seen in English football. Um, but we also shouldn't think that it's job done, and that there are no you know, there are no downsides to it. So I think it's important to be able to just take a step back and, and still see the whole picture. See, yes, it does do all these wonderful wonderful things. It just produce these great players who not only brilliantly technically able, but are also very socially aware, as we're seeing. Um, with several of the players, not just Rashford, there are a lot of them who do really great work and are really um, switched on in that regard. And a lot of, you know, some of that can be traced back to the work of, of the academies. But at the same time, there are still thousands and thousands who, who fall out of the game and, and many of them will struggle too. So um, it's important to, to to get that whole picture 
and, and praise the good work, but also poke holes in it where, where they need to be poked. Did you see the recent Panorama programme? Yeah, yes, yeah. Um, I was somewhat involved uh, with it. I had a few sort of consultation calls. With I had a feeling you might be. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There was, uh, it was mentioned at one point that they would want me to be interviewed. That that didn't come come uh, come to fruition, which is fine by me. So I, I have no real interest in appearing on TV. But I did. Yeah, they um, uh, the the director contacted me contacted me quite early on. We had some lengthy phone calls and helped put him in touch with a few people. It's quite interesting because that program touched on the role of agents uh, approaching illegally approaching fourteen year old boys, and there was one. Mm. Um, who they tried to move on from Birmingham City. Um, they, they were paying out money to the parents, apparently, um, but they wanted to move from Birmingham City to Fulham. It was something like the transfer fee for the agents would have been 120000 It's almost yeah. like uh, a kind of form of slavery, isn't it? Getting these kids to probably earn peanuts, but uh, pay out a little bit here and get huge rewards. Mm. Yeah, it's a very, very murky world. I, I dealt with the agents as well in the book, to, uh, as in one of the chapters. Um, agents aren't allowed to act for a player until they turn 16, and even then they still need parental consent until they're 18. So, um, But we know it happens, like you said, there are informal agreements in place. Um, there are inducements that are offered. I spoke to Tony Mount, Mason Mount's dad. He told me a story about one time where Mason was on international duty playing for England in France. Um, an agent sidled up to him at a bar and offered him £200,000 if he could get Mason to sign with his agency. Um, now Tony Mount's been around the game a long time. He was a, a non-league manager down the south for a long time. Um, and he's he's a fairly um, financially comfortable man himself as well. So he wasn't um, particularly swayed by that kind of thing. He, he said straight away, you know, I know that there's going to be a quid pro quo down the line. That money's going to come out of my son's pocket. I have no interest. You can go away. But you can imagine how... Um, Very tempting for more... someone in a different position. Exactly. Yeah, someone who's a bit more naive to the system or someone who is of, of a different financial standing. That's life-changing money. That's a mortgage paid off for some people. So it is, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a very, very murky world. There are some very good agents out there, but there are also a lot of, a lot of unscrupulous ones. And uh, the sheer number of agents registered in, in this country is quite staggering too. And that's, again, something I touched on in the book. I looked at how, how easy it is to become a registered intermediary, intermediary with the FA, basically amounts to a, a small... Um, fee to, to join and then a, a pinky promise to behave yourself and then a kind of a small annual fee to keep it going so there's no real incentive to to uh, to kind of vet these agents and to, and to, and to uh, weed out the, the unscrupulous ones unfortunately at the moment. When we think of club academies we generally think of top flight football uh, but the plight of young players is even worse in the in the so-called less glamorous clubs is that what you found did it give you a sense can you give us a sense of what it was like um, yeah, I, I didn't find that to necessarily be the case. To be honest, there are some clubs lower down the divisions who who do some really good stuff. Um, so I, I visited like so Colchester, for example. Um, they're a really interesting case. So at the time, and I believe it's probably still the case, they were the lowest ranked football club in the football league to have a an academy graded as high as Category Two under each group Um and they have a target. Uh, fed down to them by their chairman, which stipulates that they want to work towards having 50% of their first team squad made up of academy graduates with 50% of the, of the first team minutes being taken up by academy graduates too. And they were pretty much achieving that. So the opportunity was really high. The facilities were good. The, the, the level of coaching was really good too. The coaches were 
and find you know also being reared and, and promoted from within so there was opportunity there for development both as a coach and, and as, as a player they were doing some really good things um but then likewise I, w- I went to Bury just a few weeks before the club went under um you know it was it was a different scenario they were just were completely underfunded um I met with Mark Litherland, the academy manager, who was deeply passionate about what he did and cared deeply for his role and for the, the players entrusted to him. But um, they were just kind of an afterthought when, when things started to, to go uh, sideways for the club. Um, he had a recruitment budget of £5,000 a year, which just is, is pennies uh, at any level. Um, and he, he did his best on that. Um, he talked about how their best pro- prospects would be raised for sale primarily. So they'd separate at the age of 11 or 12. They're kind of A prospects and their B prospects. And the A prospects would be developed with, with a view to having to move on to a bigger club and be, be cherry-picked before the age of 16. And the others would be prepared for perhaps a first-team place at Bury. Uh, but then when the club went under... They were kept out of the loop in terms of communication and Mark had to break the news to all the, the players, parents himself, or let him go more than 100 uh, young people who had been with the club for, for years. Um, and yeah, it was just, it was a real afterthought. So um, it can be, uh, it, it's, it's, a, it's a financially demanding thing to run a successful academy. Some clubs lower down the the table, lower down the football league ladder, see the value in that and invest in it. Others uh, perhaps don't so much. So it is more of an afterthought. And I don't think there's quite so much care given to to the young people um, in terms of opportunities and, and welfare. Um, but yeah, it's, it's different from club to club. So I wouldn't want to make a sweeping generalisation because what I found was, uh, was, was it goes both ways. I think going back to um, Arsenal, when uh, years ago, they, their academy was just that sell-on factor. It's different now. You've got Emil Smith-Rowe, um, Bakayo Saka and, and people like that coming through. And it, it seems like a legitimate source to actually get them in the first team. But years ago, it was. You saw a, you saw a player in the youth team. You just knew they were going to be sold off. It was just something to keep the turnover, bring some money in and revenue. Which part of this book um, kind of uh, had a, a dramatic impact on you where you just kind of couldn't believe what you were seeing or hearing? Um, it probably would be around the, the welfare and aftercare aspect uh, and some of the testimonies of the parents. Um, so like that story I recounted about, um, Mason Mount's dad being offered an inducement from an agent. There was another one, uh, Rian Bruce's dad um, just explained to me that when, when Rian first went to train with Chelsea at six, he went to one of their regional development centres. Chelsea were in 11 of these around the London area. Um, it allows them to sort of extend their catchment area. So because uh, for Category 1 teams, uh, part of their privilege of being Category 1 means they can recruit nationally from the age of 14, whereas for Category 2, you have to be 16 to, to, to recruit nationally. Um, otherwise, you're bound by a 90-minute catchment area, you know, a, a radius of a 90-minute drive from your academy base. But what these development centres do is allow them to place um, these regional centres all around different parts of the country and then they have that 90 minute radius from there as well so it extends their, their, their catchment net um, and Chelsea uh, invited uh, Rian Brewster to, to train with them at six just like they did with Mason Mount um, and, and several others so um, Rian Brewster's dad took him took him along was, was kind of reluctant but he had been persuaded by the fact that he was told by the coaches that Rian would still be able to play with the school team and play with his friends because they couldn't sign him formally until he, he reached the nines level so he went along but he said that he noticed from week to week that he didn't recognise any of the parents. And he, 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 he talked about that with one of the coaches who said, 
yeah, we might cycle through as many as 350, 400 players this season just to find the 11 or 12 who'll go on to our um, elite uh, pre-academy team at Cobham. So that just the sheer numbers of that, you know, 406 year olds being sieved through just to find a handful who are going to go onto this pre-academy team who still are a million miles away from ever having any kind of future in the game. Um, and just that, that thought of, of labeling that group elite at that point as well. And sort of that over-professionalization too early on is, is also a, a troubling factor. So that was, yeah, some of the testimonies of the parents, the one I alluded to earlier of the, of the young boy who was training with four academies at the age of seven and broke his leg and was, quite unceremoniously dumped by by three of them. Um, those were the ones I think were most affecting. Well, it's it's been absolutely fascinating. Thank you so much for coming on. So um, the book, The Dream Factory, Inside the Make or Break World of Football Academies, where can it be bought and how much for? Uh, anywhere you normally can buy books. I think Amazon probably have it cheapest at the moment. So if you want to send Jeff Bezos back into space, go and Go look it up there. I think it's £13 something there. Uh, the RRP is uh, 17.99, I think, so it's, it's not a bad deal. Um, yeah, but wherever you, you normally buy your books from, I'm sure you'll be able to find it. Ryan, thanks ever so much. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much no for problem. coming on. Every goal, every disappointment, every good decision and every bad decision. From the first whistle to the final whistle. It's time to enter the gun room for a natter. Welcome to the gun room, and I'm with Jay again. Jay, we've got so much to talk about. How are you, mate? Yeah, very well, thanks, Tom. Very well, how are you, mate? Yeah, not too bad, a bit bleary-eyed, but uh, that's, <laughs> the, that's the joys of having a little one that's not very well. But, um, right, let's crack on, because we've got so much. It's, uh, this international yeah. shenanigans really gets in your face, doesn't it? Um, yeah, it does. We got a get-out-of-jail result, didn't we? Um, we'll look at the game in a minute. But yeah. uh, it's it's another point in the bank, I suppose. We can yeah. look at it that way. So the mm-hmm. team sheet comes out. Shall we just yeah. remind ourselves and then you can react to the team sheet? So it's Ramsdale, Tommy Ashu, uh, White, Gabriel. Uh, it's Benjamin White now. <laughs> <laughs> Tierney, Party, uh, Pepe, Smith-Rowe, Odegaard, Saka and Aubameyang. What were your thoughts about that? Yeah, well, like everyone else, um, you know, you, you have to look at that. It's an attacking lineup, um, and it, it kind of, you, you know, it, it meant that out of um, it was going to be party who was going to be sitting at the base of the midfield, um, and maybe Odegaard, um and Smith Rowe would, um, you know, potentially dovetail between sitting next to him, you know, but ultimately they, it was going to be five attackers with just the one sitting, um, which. On paper, it, for a, for I mean, from a supporter's point of view, you in a home game against uh, against Palace, you want to be, you know, <clears throat> it's encouraging, I suppose, that they're going for an attack, you know, straight attacking straight from the off. Um, but as the game went on, which I'm sure we will we'll touch on, um, it quickly became apparent that you know Thomas Party was just isolated in the middle when you, we were getting overran, um, and it really didn't work, um, but. But, but when I first saw the team sheet, I think the um, the child in me, you know, uh, that wants to see, you know, attack attack minded football was. I was encouraged, but it quickly went sort of downhill, didn't it? Really. 
because we had 20 good minutes in the first half, didn't we? And probably yeah. the last 15 minutes in the second half, uh, they were pretty good as well when we were on the rampage. Yeah. Um, yeah. But for me, it was quite weird. Saka going over on the left-hand side. I didn't quite yeah. like that. Um, yeah. I had no problem with Pepe coming in. We'll talk about Pepe in a minute because he's big mm-hmm. on social media at the minute. Um, and the Smith Rowe Odegaard thing, that yeah. was kind of a bit unbalanced for me. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it, Saka doesn't. I mean, we've we've spoken, haven't we? We touched on it um, this season. He's looked a bit jaded. You know, uh, he had a big summer um, for more more ways than one. Um, and, it, and I think it's he's got a bit of a hangover from that. And him going over onto that left hand side, um, he's not quite as effective, is he? Um, but um, you know, when you think. We, we don't have too many other options, but, uh, you know, and like you say, I, I'm the same as you. I, I haven't got any problem with Pepe coming in, but um, for me, it was, it, it was a good lineup. It was a strong lineup and it was a lineup that I think we, we, we that we should have, I still think we probably should have won the game. And like, we, yeah, we started well, scored a nice goal. Um, Pepe was involved in that. Um, Abamyang looked really sharp. I thought straight from the off, his pressing was good. Um, and he seemed his attitude was right. Uh, he seemed up for it. He got his goal. Um, Twenty minutes in, goal up. You know, against the um, not the best team in the league. Um, obviously, there was the Patrick Vieira thing before the game, but we seemed to have put that to one side, and it was all looking good. And then, and then, and then, it, like a, like I said a minute ago. It became really. It came. It became apparent that there was like a, a huge gap that Party was trying to fill fill by himself, and and Palace. I mean, tactically, they didn't have to be that good. They just had to basically. They they quickly realised that they could uh, they could work in that uh, in that area and and really put us under some pressure. Um, and I, I was I was screaming at the TV for for Mikel to to change it earlier. I heard you, know, you from here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, and, and, and you know, we did have, you know, obviously we had Lekonga on the bench. Um, he was obviously the, uh, you know, the natural choice. And I'd like to, Mikel, to have realised, um, because because we were, for use of a better word, we were getting battered, weren't we, by, by Palace at the end. And end of the first half, when we were, we were lucky to, to go in at, um, you know, with a clean sheet. Um, but there was a chance for um, Connor, uh, what's his name? He's, he's, their young lad. Um, he, it was a volley from the edge of the box and Ramsdale put, pushed it around the post with a really smart save. Um, and Ben Teke was finding some decent positions. Um, and, and Edward was, was, was an issue. And, and it was all, it was all stemming from there being a lot of space in front of the back four. And it was, it was like a throwback to, to the Emery days, you know, when, when we had Socrates and David Luiz at the back and there was literally no cover from midfield. There was nobody there. And it was, it just reminded me a bit of that. Um, we were very open, uh, which, which meant that, you know, it, it really pegged us back and, you know, it was no surprise when they equalised early on, you know, in the second half. I actually put a post out and said, uh, well, well, that's been coming for some time. And the one yeah. prior to that was, um, you know, we're going to concede the goal if we carry on like this. Um, yeah. We just seemed to unravel. Yet, as I say, up to the goal, we looked really sharp. But yeah. then it seemed like a tactic 
just to kind of sit back and almost invite Palace forward. There was a real negativity. Dave said to me, he said, oh, here we go. We've got the snail. And I said, what do you mean by that? And he said, you know, you're you're out with your antennas and all that sort of thing. And then <laughs> you just revert in your shell. He comes out with his classics. Um, but he said, that was it. You know, Excuse you were me. in your shell. That was it for the, um, you know, the rest of the first half. Yeah. Yeah. Which was, which was, uh, I think more, I mean, we're only, we're early into the season. Um, but I, I was sitting there and um, it was, it, it really concerned me how fragile we looked and how, um we, we, it, I mean, I suppose this is this is a trait from Arteta's Arsenal in general. We, we still struggle to to deal with pressure situation, high pressure situations. You know, it's it, we, we're winning one nil. We need somebody, and I suppose this person could be Shaka. I don't know, but we need one, one definitely more than Granite Shaka to be trying to calm them down, trying to get them to pass the ball because we, we couldn't even put two passes together. You know, they quickly worked out that. Um, you know, Tierney, they doubled up on him. So he had to keep every pass that he played was, was back inside. Uh, he couldn't get in behind because they doubled up. Um, and, and we weren't smart enough to to come up with a different method of attack. You know, um, you had Pepe tracking back and in positions that it was nice to see him helping out, Tommy Asu, but, you know, he's more effective going forward. And we, we didn't really utilise him as much as we could have. Um, but yeah, it was a, it was a, it was a worrying sort of submission, especially at the back end of the second half. And uh, you know, half time, we came out. You and you wonder what what Mikel said at half time, if anything, because we came out and it was much of the same, wasn't it? And uh, yeah, it was yeah, it very didn't go up a level at all, did it? It just stayed exactly the same, plodding mm-hmm. about, uh, really poor passes, ball retention. Uh, quite embarrassing, really, because I don't think essentially Palace are that good. I mean, no. they've won one game, have they? Out of eight? yeah, yeah. I mean, it, there's there was it was a big night, obviously, with the whole Patrick Vieira return, and um, I was impressed with them. But again, it, it, like like you see you see it so so often that clubs, you know the. Teams play well against Arsenal, and I, I often think: is it more down to the fact that that have we been so poor, and just allowed them to do that? Because I, I mean, I can't think off the top of my head. Um, I mean, they work well as a unit, but I can't think off the top of my head any sort of real outstanding attribute. You know, I thought Benteke was 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 a handful, but we made it easy for him. You know, he, he's a decent striker, and he's been around for years, and, and he knows what what he's doing, but. He's not great, you know. And how old and is he? He's about sixty-three, isn't he? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, is it, is it Connor Gallagher? I think it is Connor Gallagher. Yeah, it is. It? So and he's he's done. a he's a tiny, tiny, tidy player and good on the ball, energetic. But uh, and, and, and you know he's he's committed, and you have got Edward uh, and and like, these aren't bad, you know. These but we, you know, at the base of midfield, they've got James MacArthur, who's again been around for years. You know, and, and we've got Thomas Partey, who's we'll come on who's to winning. him in a bit. <laughs> <laughs> who was, you know, who who who's supposed supposed to be a world class midfielder? And I'm trying, you know, like like with every bad performance, um, you try and take the positives. But 
um, you know, going in at half time, I was, I was, I was concerned, and how, and how, but then I was more concerned as the as the second half progressed, how it got worse, and again, it, we I mean, didn't I'm offer sure anything we'll get... up front, did no. we? Until Lacazette came on, Dave said to me it was like uh, our attack was like a wet baguette, and I thought, mm-hmm. yeah, that that puts it in. He'd had a few drinks by then anyway, but uh, <laughs> um, right, let's let's try and open up this Pepe situation because yeah. we've been reasonably kind on the podcast to Mister Pepe. And I don't think yeah. there's any reason to change that. I mean, the tail end of last season, he was really good, wasn't he? He was banging yeah. goals, uh, looking very sharp, and then he couldn't get in this season. Uh, so he comes back, and I, I don't know whether you saw all the criticism. Um, yeah. Absolutely amazing. I mean, I don't yeah. know what game they were watching, because I thought at one stage he was our best threat going forward. Yeah, he ended the game with two assists, right? So, uh, you know, but I think Pepe's, I think when you look at Pepe, I think you can look at uh, his very similar situation that, than Mikel. I think, I think they're both very similar because we've all got our own personal views, but I don't think anybody can doubt that Pepe hasn't quite been good enough, Right. He's had little spells, little purple patches where he's done well. And there's no doubt in that he's got ability. But overall, since he signed, what what, what is this, his third season now? I think so. Yeah. Th- third, I think so. And I I don't think anybody can say he's been a massive success. And I think Mikel, uh, I mean, the jury's still out, right? And I think with, with Yeah, but results... is it him or is it we can't get the best out of him because we're not setting the team up to kind of uh, get him to deliver more? Is it that? Um, but you could argue that we've brought in, um, you know, Erdegaard, who's supposed to be the the creator who can pick that pass. And um, it, it's a tough one because you could you could argue that we look stronger when he's not in the team. You know, when we're, you know, we've our better performances come maybe when um, when Saka's on the right, you know. Um, and I mean, let me ask you this. If some if if in January, Newcastle came in with 30 million pound bid for him, for Nicola Pepe, would you accept it? Probably. Yeah, I think I would because I just think, and that's why that's why I wanted to just mention Mikel. I think, how long do you persist with Pepe when when you can only go by the evidence of what you've seen, right? So, I mean, like with all the Arsenal players, everybody everybody you speak to on social media, they all have their own personal opinion, and and and, and you know, we're both very similar. We don't publicly slate anybody really especially without any any justification you know but and he certainly hasn't done anything to warrant the abuse that he gets I just think you know and, and as well I think sometimes some players just aren't suited they're just not suited to the Premier League you know do you remember Juan Sebastian Veron when he was the Argentine midfielder the attacking midfielder when he signed for Man United and he, he played for Chelsea and he played for Man United he came over from uh, Palmer and he played for uh, Inter Milan as well. He, he was immense, you know, it, it, over in Italy. And when he came to England, he just couldn't do it. And, and, and this was this was, uh, you know, one of the very best attacking midfielders of, of the generation. And, and he just couldn't do it. So, I mean, it, you know, if Pepe went and played abroad, 
I think he'd be a success. I, I just think I'm getting to the point personally where I'm not I'm not sure really how how much longer you you go on with with Pepe and and and, and treat him as a starter as a first team starter. I think from the bench he's dangerous, but I I, I don't know. What what's your thoughts? What what do you think? I think if I was if I was Pepe, I'd be a bit frustrated with that performance. Not. I mean, it, it was a reasonably good performance for him because of the outcome, because of what he delivered in the end. But yeah. um, I'd be kind of frustrated that particular evening because he didn't get the ball as often as he should. When he was on fire, suddenly the supply dried up and we started going over the left and through the middle yeah. and all that sort of thing. I don't think he got the ball as often as he should have. And I've, I put that on social media. But I, yeah, yeah, like you, I mean, he's got to start delivering. People bang on about the price tag, but that was uh, that was Raoul, wasn't it? Yeah, a little bit of the old um, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. One, one for me, one for you. Exactly. I, I mean, he, whichever way you look at it, he's one of our biggest threats, isn't he? We we, we haven't. I mean, going forward, uh, you know, like like you touched on our strike, Abamyang. I thought his attitude was right, like I said, and he was pressing well when he scored a goal, but he was anonymous. You know, you've got Lacazette who came on, who, who showed he was full of energy and uh, full of enthusiasm. And he got a goal and, and he, he took up some positions that Aubameyang just can't. You know, he drops deeper and he picks the ball up and he gets involved and he's stronger. He seems to like like that physical side a bit more than Aubameyang does. Um, and that's pretty much it from a central point of view. Then you've got uh, Martinelli, who came onto the left hand side, who looked tricky, but again isolated. And then, and then you've got Pepe, and you know he needs to s- deliver, you know, um, because he can't be happy with the way things are either. You know, he 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 has to he has to look at himself. You know, the, the, okay, they're professional footballers, but they're that you know they self criticize like we all do. You know, that they, they they look at each other and and they look at themselves and. Uh, he can't be happy. I just, I think more, more, more than ever this season, Mikel has given him the minutes, hasn't he? And, he, and he's given him that push, and, and he just he hasn't been able to to replicate that back end form back in the last season, which makes me think that he's just he is inconsistent. I think Pepe. I think we just have to accept the fact that he's an inconsistent player who can come up with moments of absolute brilliance. Tell you what, though, because, what defender he was. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Even when he was, when there, he was tidying yeah. up. And I think his style as well, his, his his playing style, he can be quite careless in possession and he looks a bit, um, he, look, he looks, I mean, he's not, I mean, I, I saw a few people label him as chaotic. He's not, he's better than that. But he's, in the same way as when Mesut was playing for us, he had that sort of lazy style, which 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 led to people to think that he he didn't care or he wasn't bothered or he wasn't putting the effort in, which which wasn't the case. He just that was his style, and I think with Pepe, I mean he, he frustrates the living daylights out of me, but he can also do things with the football that not many others can, and 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 the first goal especially, that's the position you want him to be in when he's attacking the ball from the corner of the box, open his body up, and he curls the ball round, and that that's where you want him to be. And like you said, I suppose that there is definitely a, an element of we're not getting the best out of him. Um, but you could also t- you could you could take that back to the manager not knowing how to get the best out of him. So and you, and you could apply that maybe to 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 the rest of the squad, um, uh, because more often than not, 
we're having this kind of podcast, aren't we? Where we're talking about poor performances and draws and, and defeats rather than wins. Uh, and I'm sure we'll get onto the manager, but uh, yeah, concerned me. <laughs> it really did. It really did on Monday. It really bothered me. It's, it's. Um, I don't know. I, I just still feel there's a player in there, um, but mm-hmm. I, I, I'm not sure how to solve it. I mean, if Arteta can't solve it with his coaching staff uh, and the players that he's got, then maybe it isn't solvable. But when he's on, he does look lively going forward. He looks our best option at times. Um, I don't know. It's a difficult one. Let's move on to the the nasty element of the Palace game. I mean, there were some yeah. hefty old tackles flying in there, weren't there? And um, VAR must have been turned off or something. It must have had a, a power surge and the electricity mm-hmm. went off. Um, the MacArthur on Saka, yeah. what do you make of that? I, I mean, I, I can't, I couldn't believe it uh, when, when the, in real time, you know, it was on the edge of the box and I thought maybe the referee, maybe the referee didn't quite see it or didn't have a good enough view when in reality, the referee was right in line and he was about five yards away. I, I can't quite understand where the thought so, so the referee's got it wrong and he's five yards away. The v- VAR's got it wrong. They've got multiple angles. He's kicked him straight in his leg. The, I mean, there is one, there's one clip where there's one photo where he's actually, he's connected with Bukayo Saka's right calf and the ball isn't even in the picture. No. You know, the ball is nowhere. He took out um, his standing leg, didn't he? And he's, he's just, he's just whacked him. He's had to go off. And I mean, there was a few, I think there was a few occasions where MacArthur probably should have got booked before that. Um, but let's Yeah, there was the one that. on let's... Emil Smith Rowe, wasn't there? There was another nibble at Aubameyang. Uh, that but let, probably but, but, one of those did, uh, should have got a yellow. But this, um, this isolated incident, I mean, you could, I think, I think in any game, <laughs> any game or every game for the rest of the season, if, if something like that comes up, it's going to be a red card. And it just, I don't know. I think it's, there's so much referee bias and there's so many incidents like this, you know, where, where we'll get a red card and then the next game, the very same thing happens to another team and it doesn't happen. And, and this was obviously the other way around where we, we were on the end of a, of a, of a clear red card for me. And, you watch next week, there'll be something very similar and there'll be a straight red. And I'm just... Uh, I'm just going to throw this it. out there. Had MacArthur been Xhaka? Exactly. And well, that's... Exactly. Be- because if the ball is right next to Saka, or, or or even if the ball is 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 on is Saka's controlling the ball with his chest, at least the ball is in about, you know, a metre distance from MacArthur's foot. But the ball was long gone and... I mean, if I do that on a Sunday, I get a red card and I probably get kicked back, you know. And But, yeah, I thought it was disgusting. And I feel, you know, I think it's come out today that Saka might be fit, but, you know, he may be fit, but um, Mikel might rest him. But What yeah. are you supposed to make of VAR now? Because uh, it was heralded as the next big thing and it was going to cut out all the mistakes. There's an absolute thousand percent glaring mistake. He should have been yeah. off and that should have been uh, a sort of second yellow. 
uh, yeah. and a red followed. What happened? Why is why is it happening? Is it just that because is. it's Arsenal? I think it's definitely about time that that referees were made to do post match interview. It doesn't have to be the match referee, but it could be the VAR. Whoever's sitting in the VAR room, you know, th- why, why? How hard can it be for a camera to be set up there? Obviously, there's plenty of cameras in the state, and the camera to be set up in the room, and then, and, and I don't know, it can be the the TV, it could be Sky, Gary Neville could be asking the VAR, what made, what was your thought pattern behind that? A bit of clarity, so so we can, so at least. At least if it's a if it's a complete bullshit decision like it was, and they're explaining it and they're giving some reasons why, at least there is some you can you can maybe come round to understand that point of view. But because they're just the Premier League are so protective over their referees and they they don't have to come out and explain anything, you know, and half the referees, I don't know, the, the standard's so poor, and and, and VAR's just gone so the other way now, hasn't it? Whereas a couple of well, no, about a year ago, if you if the ball even touched the air around your hand in the box, it was a it was a penalty, or you know it was handball. Whereas now you can just take a free swipe at someone, take them out in midair, make them have to go off, and you don't get a red card. Well, I'm wondering you know? what's going on because we can host a tournament in this country, and VAR seems to be slick, spot on. I think yeah. there's one questionable thing, and uh, then we go back to the Premier League. And it's really broken. It's busted. Mm-hmm. It's, yeah, it's it doesn't make sense. Just doesn't make sense. They're just it's, they're just not very good. They're just inept, aren't they? They're just. <laughs> anyway, let's move on. Uh, we'll depress ourselves otherwise. Lacazette mm. comes on. He's all fire. Yeah. I, I love strikers like that. I love it when they come on. They're uh, rushing the crowd. Come on. Um, yeah. He looked like he had a real fire in his belly. Um, and then he got involved, and he we looked a bit more productive. Yeah, yeah. I'm the same as you. When he came on, and I think it was he'd only been on about a minute or two, and the ball went out for a, I think it was for a corner, and he was geeing up the crowd, and uh, that's what you want to see. You know, you, you want to see that enthusiasm. I like uh, a feisty you know, striker. Yeah, and and, and I tell you, I tell you one thing. I know nobody plays four four two anymore, but <laughs> there's a, there's a bit of me that wants to see Aubameyang and Lacazette just up front in a front two, you know, just like the old days of of of, of Henri and Burkamp, uh, you know that yeah. Obviously, we're not talking about you know these players aren't on the same level, but Lacazette, the way he drops deep deeper now, and and he's more he's happier to to, to go and get the ball, and um, and like I said, he he seems to thrive on the physical side a bit more. Uh, and, and him and Aubameyang, they were linking up quite well. There was a lovely little passage of play where um, Aubameyang received the ball and he flicked it and it went in between the two defenders and Lacazette went on the outside, which I thought was, and I think he he made, uh, I think it was Gaeta, the goalkeeper for Palace. He pulled off an half, like an half-decent save, but they seemed to link quite well. Um, and I'd like to see a bit more of that um, because... We're still look. We're so lackluster, aren't we? We're toothless in front of goal, and we're creating very little. Um, uh, but yeah, I thought Lacazette did really well. He hasn't played much this season, and you could definitely see that there was there was that that will that want you know he wanted to impress. Um, and I won't be if surprised if you were watching if, that from another team, mm. you were a coach from another team, you'd come in in January, wouldn't you? It's again, yeah, yeah, 
and he does it, and obviously he carries a threat. Um, I just, I think from from our point of view, from an Arsenal point of view, we know um, one, if not both, are going to be gone within a year. Um, I'm a bit, but obviously we're not talking about that. We're talking about where we are now. And and to be honest, for 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 the Villa game, I want to see Lacazette involved. You know. Um, I think everyone does, uh, you know, going by talking to friends and uh, on social media, there's a big clamour because he offered us something that was uh, so lacking in that performance. Um, so would you say, on the evidence of what we've seen over recent games, that we're missing a key ingredient for January, that they might actually go out and sort of say, because Party's, uh he's going to the African Nations Cup, isn't he? Yeah. Um, are we going to go out and prioritise uh, another creative midfielder or do we go up front? Which one are we going to yeah. do? Well, I don't think we're going to do both. No, no. I mean, and Granit Xhaka, he's, he's, he's obviously going to be out until the new year at an absolute minimum, right? So um, what does that leave you with? Sambi Lukonga and Ainsley Maitland-Niles or, yeah, Gazelle Nenny, he'll, he'll be gone as well, right? So we are really thin in there. Um, Space for Jack they, Wilshire. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you'd love Jack from from you know ten ten years ago, right? You'd love yeah. you'd love him. Uh, maybe get maybe a loan signing, you know, like a bit of a grizzled veteran who could come in and do a little job for for six months. Um, I don't think we'll go for a striker. I think we've, we're just gonna. I think we will um, concentrate on that centre midfield position. Uh, but yeah, it's worrying, it's isn't it? For the summer, isn't it? It's going to be big yeah. parts. It's going to be sixty million. It is worrying though that the, the, the players that we're losing in January, you know. Um, so you got you know Partey, Aubameyang, Pepe, um, obviously El Nenny to a lesser extent. Um, Go on, drive him to the airport. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so you live in hope that there's a plan. Or, or there's there's a there's a there's a selection of names that they've they've highlighted. Um, Let's but, do the transfer stuff because uh, you know we're talking about it now. Uh, Links with Oxlade Chamberlain, uh, Alexis Sanchez, Aaron Ramsey, uh, Calvert Lewin, uh, Ollie Watkins, Noah Lang. What do you think about those? Or is there someone that you would uh, kind of pencil in yourself? Yeah, I, I wouldn't really be interested in bringing back any of the the older players. You know, I think I think maybe I mean Aaron Ramsey. I think he's the only one playing at a decent level now. You know, I mean Chamberlain. I think he he comes in from time to time, doesn't he? At Liverpool, but plays very rare. You know, very rarely gets a you know, rarely gets a, a game. Sanchez, I couldn't even tell you anything about him. Is he is he even playing? Is he at Inter still? I think no, he's I think he's uh, he's uh, a free now, isn't he? Free, free agent. Yeah, same he's as what I said about. Yeah, Jack Wilshire, you know, a prime Alexis Sanchez would be absolutely, you know, unbelievable. But obviously that's not going to happen. Um, what about Frank Kessie? Yeah, Kessie, yeah. yeah fits he's, he's, fits he's, the brief, doesn't he? Powerful, athletic, mm-hmm. only 24, uh, great yeah. vision, superb passes mm-hmm. as well. Yeah, very strong player. Um, he's, uh, so Ivan Casides, you know, I think, he'd, I think Ivan is sell as a player. <laughs> well he owes us one doesn't he yeah, more than let's, one yeah let's be honest yeah yeah but I think it'll be yeah when it comes to January I think they'll probably be like I said maybe a, a 30 plus 30 year old um, 
centre midfielder maybe that can that can sit, you know, um, where you can also let somebody, you know, Lukonga's still learning, you know, he's still pretty raw, um, but he needs that game time. So, you know, you'd, you'd hope maybe maybe alone um, for, I mean, I don't know anyone off the top of my head. I mean, Calvert-Lewin, I'd love, I'd, 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 I'd like him at the club, but like you said, I think that'd be more for the summer um, than January. Right, here we go then. Uh, everyone who's listened to the previous part will know what's coming. Um, I asked on social media, which Arsenal player has disappointed you the most and why? So you had your Van Persies and uh, Cole and all that sort of stuff. Mm. David Seaman. Mm-hmm. That came up as the, the number yeah. one name. So um, this was from a guy called Ken, and I actually invited him to come on the show. So we could mm-hmm. discuss it and tell him yeah. how wrong he was. Uh, Ken said, in a nutshell, he hid behind the greatest defence this country's ever seen. He wasn't brave enough. He bottled the big occasion. Right. What do you think? Oh, well, I was a big David Seaman fan. I mean, I suppose, you know, every what was his name? Who came up with that? Ken. Ken. Ken you know, it's, it, it, what's interesting about <laughs> Sorry, that point Ken. of view, <laughs> what, what's interesting about that point of view is it's interesting how, like, let's take it at face value. Let's, let's say that he actually genuinely thinks that. And he's not just, he's not just creating that point of view just for the, just to be different, right? Let's, let's take it at face value. What's interesting is how different that point of view is to, you know, to, to the most part. Um, so yeah. Ken's um, Ken's point of view was uh, that basically Schmeichel was the better keeper because he won more trophies. But he pointed out, and this is the point that I, I tried to impress upon him, he said that we had the best defence in the country. And mm-hmm. uh, if we've got the best defence in the country at that time, how can you go blaming one person, which is David Seaman? David Seaman is part of the back five, which is part of the defence. He's the last line of defence. I just... Yeah just couldn't get the argument from that point of view because he's already set it up and then he's like knocked it down. He's knocked his own skills yeah. down. <laughs> yeah. It's just interesting how different people have different views, isn't it? Cause I was a big fan of Seaman. Um, and, and he made, I mean, you could so many great moments for England and, you, you know, some great saves. Um, I don't think there'd be too many people that would agree with Ken, right? I don't think that. Well, he's um, saying about the, um, the Ryan Giggs goal in the FA cup. Do you remember that one? And oh, yeah. also the 1995 UEFA Cup Winners' Cup oh, yeah. uh, with Naeem, the ex-Tottenham yeah. guy, uh, beat yeah. from distance. Uh, yeah. So that's his justification. Which uh, yeah, I mean the, the Naeem that was uh, that was just a that was a hit and hope. And I suppose the keeper shouldn't get beat from there. Uh, I'll, I'll give Ken that. Maybe that was Seaman's fault. The the goal at Villa Park against Man United, um, Rangig should have been fouled. Like that was not David Seaman's fault. There was about what was it, Vieira um, and uh, Lee Dixon both should have fouled Ryan Giggs before that. So there's absolutely no. I mean, it was out. yeah, clean, yeah, clean, yeah. Right. Finally, we've got the contentious issue of um, Bergkamp's Newcastle goal, two thousand and two, is said yeah. to be one of the most overrated goals ever. <sighs> yeah. Your thoughts. Absolutely no. Don't give me that. Apparently it was that. an accident. He was falling backwards and he managed to get the ball who, round. Who's coming, up? Who's coming up with this rubbish? 
Who's coming up with this rubbish? Listen, listen to the podcast because I think what it is is <laughs> it's a guy that's out there to clickbait and all the rest of it. Yeah, yeah. He's, yeah. Um, he's also picked on Omri's goal uh, against yeah. Tottenham, uh, saying that rubbish. it was just the, just the canter. It was just out for a stroll. <laughs> I mean, so, the, the, the goal at the goal at St James's Park. Um, you, if it was by if it was by accident, Dennis wouldn't move the way he did and go directly to the ball. He wouldn't know where the ball was or would end up, right? He would be looking around. He knew exactly where the ball was. He knew exactly what he was doing. This is Dennis Bergkamp we're talking about. This isn't Jamie O'Hara or this isn't any other idiot. You know, this is, this is Bergkamp. This is, this is the guard, isn't it? This is the, this is the top man. So I'm not having any of that. Like you say, clickbait, rubbish. Yeah. It was um, for me. It still stands out. Well, you know, it is. It's, it's my mm. favourite Arsenal goal ever. And there have been some crackers. I mean, you know, we've dis- discussed it on a podcast before now. I mean, we? if you if you ever if you ever have the chance to read Dennis Bergkamp's autobiography, he, he breaks down what in in certain chapters he breaks down those goals. He breaks down his goal against Argentina for Holland in the '98 World Cup, and he breaks down the goal against Newcastle and. You know, this is this is a this is a footballer who was on a different level with the way he analysed the ball, with the way he would concentrate so much on technique, how he connected with the ball when he shot, and he knew if he connected with the ball in a certain way, it would be going in a certain. I know that sounds a very obvious thing for a professional footballer, but the way he the way he analysed every aspect of his game, um, there's I'm in absolutely no doubt that everything he did, he meant. Um, and and I mean just 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 look up Thierry Henry. Look at look at all the players Thierry Henry played with. He he says that Dennis Bergkamp was the best, and he played with Messi. He played with well all of those players at, at you know Etu, uh, Xavi, Iniesta. You know, Dennis was the best, you know, no doubt about it. The offer still stands, Ken. If you're uh, you're tuned in, you can come on. Uh, give us a different point of view. Uh, we're not yeah. uh, sort of criticising it. We're open to a, no. a little bit of mildly hostile banter. <laughs> it's just interesting. It is interesting how people have these different points of view, you know, because yeah. that is very, I mean, I don't think I've ever heard anybody say that about David Seaman, you know, neutrals up and down the country loved David Seaman and could see how good he was. Um, but it's a point of view, I suppose, that, um, I suppose he would. Uh, I mean, he, him and him and Schmeichel were the best two, Seaman and and Schmeichel, and they were. They Incidentally, were I asked Ken who his favourite Arsenal player was, and he could say Dennis Bergkamp. So Ken, we're going to give you that. We yeah. uh, big up. Um, <laughs> right, time's over, Jay. Uh, got a fly. Uh, got an unwell little boy. Um, ah. I'll speak to you soon. And yeah. uh, thanks very much. Yeah, take care, mate. Take Bye-bye. care. Cheers. Right, we're all done here. My thanks to Dave, Isaiah and Jay. Check out Isaiah's blogs at AmericanArsenology.medium.com or look him up on Twitter. You can find Dave on Twitter as SilentDave101 and Jay as the Borguna. Thanks to our guest, Ryan Baldy, the author of The Dream Factory, Inside the Make or Break World of Football's Academies, and please buy a copy online. Shout-outs to Soam D and Brandon Murphy. Just a reminder to check out the blogs at AskDevils.com or AmericanArsenology.medium.com. Also, please subscribe to the audio or YouTube versions of the podcast. 
Up next, it's Villa. We need goals and we need a performance. We need to pump it up. There's a clue to the end track. Thanks for taking the time to join us. We'll see you next time. Stay safe and well. And remember one crucial thing. North London is red. <laughs>